The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. So I was watching um, Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark the other day, and to an extent, the Holy Grail, but more specifically, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I was just kind of really thinking about Nazi Germany and just the whole situation there. And obviously, Indiana Jones is amazing and I'm also a huge fan of Inglorious Bastards. And I wanted to know more about the topic of Nazi Germany and really kind of delve into it. And I just happened to meet somebody who has studied this and has been to Auschwitz and made a, a short film there. And it's Hannah Taylor, uh, who I met in England. And she's a wrestler. She's a Twitch uh, performer. She's a horror movie expert and very, very uh, knowledgeable about this topic of, of, of Nazi Germany. So how did you originally start getting into this because it's such a deep dark subject so when i was growing up my dad was like hugely into history and he used to take me to all these museums when i was younger and then i started watching movies like more movies as a teenager do you know when you kind of become a teenager and you get more and more into what cool films are right and i ended up studying film at university i studied my master's degree as well at university, Which university? liverpool liverpool right. yeah so I did a couple of kind of essays on how Nazis are portrayed in cinema and how it's influenced cinema. And then in my third year for my bachelor's degree, uh, we were tasked to you know, make a documentary. And the documentary could be pretty much anything we wanted to do. And I'm like a huge fan of Ziga Vertov, who did a movie called Man with the Movie Camera. I think it was the early 1920s. And it's an observatory documentary. So it's kind of where you go to a place or a city and you just have a camera. It's like the man with the movie camera. It's the name, name of the film. And he just filmed all these cool things. And um, I was like, that's the kind of documentary I want to do. And it sounds kind of pretentious and maybe a little bit. But you're a film student. Yeah, of course, I'm a film student. I have to be pretentious. Um, <laughs> but I was I was thinking, like, okay, what type of documentary do you want to, want to do? And you know, I've always had this interest in World War II history and I've always wanted to visit Auschwitz, Auschwitz-Birkenau, but then as I started researching more into it, I was like, Auschwitz is a place, but it's actually in a town. And it's in a town called Osvishim. And I hope I pronounced that right because there was a few different pronunciations. Like, there's an English way of pronouncing it. And then when we were there, the people who we spoke to pronounced it a little bit differently. But anyway, 
I was researching about the town and I came across this photographer who went to Auschwitz and they just did still photography and they called it the shadow of Auschwitz. And it was, you have the camp and it's what's outside of the camp. And Interesting. It, it, it was. And I was like, people don't realize it was it was in a natural town. Yeah, I thought Auschwitz was the name of the town. So I think during, I hope I remember this correctly because I do have memory problems, but um. <laughs> but um, I believe, like, I think during the Second World War, they actually renamed the town to Auschwitz, and it was after the war that it got gotcha. went back to its original name. So there was like a group of us at university, and we kind of self-funded, pay for our own flights, pay for our hotels, and we stayed in Krakow, and we went over there. And obviously, we to do this type of documentary, and even when I was writing about films at university, you, you can't just write about a film you have to have the context of what was going on at the time you can't go and analyze a film such as like dead snow inglorious bastards indiana jones without having the context of what happened during the, the second world what was war. going on then right so we went over there and we stayed in krakow you have like places like the shinless factory the jewish quarter but you have to take a bus that's around two hours to get there right and so when we first went, our phones didn't work. So this was a few years old. I was only like 20 years old when I was doing this. So where, where is this in accordance to like, what, what bigger city in Germany is it? Oh, it's Poland. Oh, it's Poland. That's Poland, what Poland, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. So, I didn't uh, know that. Okay. So Krakow, uh, you, well, we stayed there, but then you have to travel two hours to get to Oswishim. There's trains, there's buses. Right, of course. So, so what did you see when you got there? Uh, well, when we got there, we got dropped off this bus. We Our phones weren't working properly, so we got dropped off on the bus and we had no idea where to go so it was a weird start because we had all our film equipment with us we were like very young we so we started walking we were walking in the opposite direction so Auschwitz was the opposite direction so we ended up walking to a like a row of houses and a little kind of I guess it would be like a suburban kind of street yeah. we had no way we were going so we went into this there was a bakery there and at first I thought wow there is Auschwitz like is five minutes away and there's a bakery right here yeah. that to me was this place where all these millions of well, hundreds of thousands of people died and then you have a bakery yeah, just right there but, the two sides of humanity right yeah so we went into the bakery and we were like do you know how we can get to Auschwitz and uh, we tried to buy some of the baked goods to say thank you and they weren't even taking our money they were such nice people uh-huh. and then uh, I think the woman who won the bakery grabbed her husband and her husband drove us to Auschwitz so when we got there, one of the things I'd always heard before I went to Auschwitz from people I'd spoken to who had been off and what I'd read uh, online uh, was there was there's no wildlife there. There's nothing there. But when we went, there was crows, there were squirrels around. So for me, that's kind of more ominous that you have this awful place and people say, oh, there's, there's no wildlife here. But there, there is. There, there is. is. Did, did you go inside? Yeah. Obviously. So there's Auschwitz, there's Auschwitz, and then there's Birkenau. And then there's technically one called Auschwitz Three, but that's further away, and it's basically just rubble now. Right. So Auschwitz, it's is more of like a museum. Uh, so when we went in there, uh, you have the, you go on like tours, and uh, there was the room full of hair. So and then the room full of like spectacles, glasses that they take. What's the from. room full of hair? So you go in and it's kind of you, there's no photography there from what I remember. Like you can't film anything, you can't take photos, which is completely understandable. So you go in and it, what I remember it was like a huge, huge glass case. I don't want to say how many feet, but it was it was very big, and it's just filled with human hair. 
that they put into a pile and it's filled with human hair. Why the hair from the uh, from the prisoners? So what they would do was they would shave the hair of the prisoners and they would use it for textiles. Oh my gosh! Um, so from what I remember reading is they would take the hair and make things like socks out of it and oh, wow. give it to their soldiers. And uh, I can't remember the name of the. There was a recently a car company that they had found human hair that had been used in their cars in the early 40s oh, and they found elements of Zyklon B inside the hair which shows that the prisoners were really gassed and they'd taken the hair. Oh, my goodness. Um, there was also the uh, same thing filled with spectacles of glasses? Yeah, so glasses. They would just take the glasses yeah. of, from the prisoners and they would also take the fillings from their teeth, you know, gold fillings right. and use that as well. Use that to make gold-plated... God knows what they did of it. Um, there was, they would steal whatever they could, and that's what that's they do to the prisoners. So we went. There was that room. There was the room with the glasses, and then you kind of go outside and you see these like kind of they're kind of like cabins, like these where they would keep. It was more of a labor camp, I think. Yeah, this one, yeah, yeah. and then you walk past, and there was the firing wall, and that was the execution wall where they would shoot prisoners. And they had a very small gas chamber that you went through. And this was just in Auschwitz. And right. then as you come out of there, so that is more like a museum. So things are set up there for you to see and learn about. And you know, when you go to a museum, you see them in glass cases. So out, out of, outside of there, this is the more interesting one for me, is you get a short bus and go to Auschwitz-Birkenau. And Auschwitz-Birkenau is, is very untouched. It's you go in and everyone knows the kind of, the train track that runs down the middle, the right. the sign. So that that's Auschwitz-Birkenau, and that is where you had the women's bunkers, the men's bunkers, you had the incinerators as well, and the gas chambers. And we were filming there, and it's so strange because it's such, it's beautiful. There's trees there, it's landscape. It's, yeah. And there was Himmler was the one who was very into organizing the concentration camps and the death camps. He he would visit them regularly, make sure they were run in a way that he saw fit. And he had this idea that these camps have to be near wildlife and lakes because it was pure. And he felt that if these prisoners are in a place that's pure and natural, they will that will filter into their kind of ideology. So we went to, we were filming the bunkers and I went towards the women's bunkers and I can't explain how it made me feel because when you're seeing the stuff behind the cases in the museum, that's one thing. But to be inside these bunkers, and they were so small, and there was hundreds of women in them and hundreds of children as well. Hmm. And you realize what they yeah. went through. And then it was very cold. We went to film in February, and it was freezing. And... The prisoners obviously had to work in those conditions as well for hours on, I think it was less than 500 calories a day. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com. T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N dot com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. 
let's, let me ask you a couple questions first of all, just to kind of put some context into what you're talking about, context. So, first of all, how many millions of Jews died in these camps? They say at least six million altogether. Six million. Yeah. That's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Um, and why was Hitler so intent on wiping out the Jewish race? So it wasn't just the Jewish race. The, I don't know if the Jewish if race is even the dwarf, the Jewish people, I guess you might say. So it wasn't just, it wasn't the, just Jews. the Jews. No, I, he did target the Jews. But then he targeted homosexuals. He targeted political opposition. He targeted prostitutes, communists. So anyone that didn't fit in with the kind of ideology that's who they targeted as well but it was towards the end of the war so at first they were killing for ideological reasons but then towards the end of the war so Auschwitz was liberated in 1944 but then there was still more death camps and gassings going on after Auschwitz so they were losing the war at this point so Ravensbrück is the all women's camp and what they did is they dismantled some of the gas chamber from Auschwitz because they could be transported and they bought it to Ravensbrück. And at this point, these camps were so overpopulated because they evacuated all of the Jews and uh, apoliticals from the east and brought them over. And they set up gas chambers in these camps because it wasn't just for ideological reasons it was because for them at the time it was productive they couldn't have this many people in the camp so they were killing essentially for the sake of killing and so so the Jews were the biggest target for Hitler because they went against his ideologies I I honestly can't say the the reason it was social Darwinism gotcha so the idea of like this mass race is pure Aryan race the blonde hair blue eyes that everyone knows right. about and it, it wasn't they weren't uh, ethnically pure gotcha actually so if they didn't fit in with that they were sent away wow okay so these these camps are there and now, now so what the Nazis would just raid people out of their homes wherever they were you mentioned Poland for example herd them into trains and take them there or can, can I tell us a little bit about how, how that how they herded them together, I guess you'd say. So there was loads of different things that they did. So they had the SS Einsatzgruppen, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I read a huge book on that. And they were these death squads that went through Europe and they killed civilians. They just went around killing civilians. Um, not Not everyone was gassed. In the early 1940s, I think it was, they also killed children with disabilities. So obviously... The disabled were also targeted because oh. they would they want it was this idea of like pureness and they felt that they were an economic burden and they were not you know people they wanted in the bloodline so gotcha. one of the things i remember reading about was uh, they set up these children's hospitals use children hospitals in quotation marks they were essentially murder sentence for children who had um disabilities or health issues it's terrible yeah, yeah and um so obviously when you say, like, you know, they, they talk as the Jews, they talk as the children as well. They talk as the women, they talk as the men, homosexuals. They didn't just talk as Jews. And uh, there was, I think, 30 of these centers. Uh, I know two were in Poland. I think two or three were in Poland, two in Australia, uh, Austria. And essentially they would bring children who were, were medically disabled or had something wrong with them, and they would take them to these. They were essentially disguised as pediatric centers, and they would... Tell the parents, hey, we're going to treat your children. And then 
they would speak to the parents and get consent to have them treated. And this I get, probably early on in the war, I imagine. Uh, right? I think it was 40, 41. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Well, I got you. Yeah, because the, the war was 39 to 44, basically, right? World War Two. So what you're saying is it's probably... My point is before everyone knew what the Nazis were all about. Yeah, there's 30 chil- uh, killing wards or special children wards. And I think it was over 5,000 they killed in total. Oh, wow. And the thing is you hear 6 million Jews or uh, I think the SS Einsatz Gruppen killed over I think 200 to 300,000 all through Europe. So 5,000 seems like such a small number. But this is what is so sad like 5,000 children had died at least they you always have to say there was probably so many more so what they would do is they would use incentives to get consent from the parents to give their children treatment and I use treatment in quotation marks it was essentially authorized murder and these parents didn't know that this was going to happen to their children of course um some children died of overdoses of barbiturates narcotics others of starvation neglect the conditions that they were actually kept in. Uh, they were kept in cold temperatures and, you know, they were withheld medical treatment as well. That's terrible. So mm-hmm. it's not just, just like you said, mass murdering. There's a lot of torturing going on. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm sure we'll talk about some of the experiments that you always hear about and that sort of thing. But so, like, when you're talking about, like... The experiments. Um, well, I, I want to get there, but f- so what you're saying, but most of the men... There was some that were working there, mm-hmm. but mostly they were killed, right? And, and, a lot of them were killed. So a lot of the men were used as labor for the war effort. So they were used to make munitions. They were used, used to make stuff that they would use in the actual war as well. Okay. So it was free labor, essentially. Gotcha. So, for example, Raven's Book, another, the camp I mentioned before. The women's um, camp. Yeah, so yeah. there's a book called uh, for, by Sir Helm uh, that delves into Raven's Book. And they would use the women in the camps as labor for different companies. And on the edge of the camp, Siemens, the company, would use the women for their production. So they would take women as free labor from the camps and use them. And Siemens is still around now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they, I think, I do believe that they've... Made compensation? No, no, they haven't. They, they have or... said no knowledge of this. They've never been oh, accountable gotcha. for... Oh, I gotcha, gotcha, no accountability, gotcha. And obviously, it's whether they knew what was happening to the women in these camps. So, and if these women couldn't work anymore, some of them were obviously killed. And if they, you know, if you're if a woman can't work anymore and you're sending her back to the camp, do you know what's going to happen to her? Right. Do you take, where is the responsibility there for that woman who's working for you? Yeah. So, there's mostly women and children in the camps. And what are they doing? Are they just being held prisoner? Or is the, was the intent always to kill them? Were they killing them in waves and bringing... Like, I mean, if you're killing six million people, it's a pretty high mm-hmm. rate of, of death. So, there was lots of different camps. There was... you. Everyone knows the main camp of Auschwitz. Dresden. Um, it was yeah, another one, right? Yeah. You have Treblinka as well. And you have to remember all these numbers, they, they were going through Europe as well, killing them as well. They were killing Russians. They were killing Poles. They were killing the Hungarian Jews as well. So... They were coming from all over Europe. They weren't just from Germany. And they were killing the disabled. Yeah, it was definitely in 40 to 41. It was the T4, which is the gas murders. And they would take gas vans through Europe and Germany. And these were just 
vans that were gas chambers, that mobile gas vans. Really? They would, they would put people in there and kill them that way. So it's that's essentially one of the ways it started. It was mobile gas chambers, and they would kill small amounts of people in those chambers. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. So talk about the gas chambers at the actual camps. Were they almost like showers or something like that? or was there- uh, Yes, they would put them into the gas chambers <laughs> and... Under the bruise that they were showers and they were gas. Showers of gas or showers? Uh, it was uh, Cyclone B. It was. It kind of came from above and they were just gassing in these chambers. So that would kill you how quickly? Like you would be a quick death because you just... No, would, no. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. So so there's such an element of, of just diabolical, warped, terrible like with with this torture the just sadistic type of people does that come from the top is that hitler saying or is it is it himmler doing this like we're not just going to kill them but we're going to give them long painful deaths as well essentially for them it was a effective and efficient way of killing it wasn't necessarily there were nazis and you will find individual nazis ss officers i think there was over 300,000 who have specific acts of like torture which you can go into later on but it was essentially not we want to make their death as long as possible it was it was efficient you could pile hundreds and hundreds of people into these gas chambers and kill them all at once and then you would obviously german efficiency right essentially that's what what it was which sounds so horrible saying it like it was efficient but that's how they saw it that's the way they saw it Um, so you could pile hundreds of people in there and kill them all at once and then you would more so one of the interviews we had for our documentary was from what i remember this was a few years ago uh, yeah. one of the gentlemen who was in the camps uh, he was in a line and he said uh, there was an ss guard walking past him and he was like oh what's the smoke coming from that chimney and the ss guard replied to him that's your family oh my gosh so you the you have to remember there would be lines and they would split into who was going to the gas chambers and then who was going to work. To work, right? Mm-hmm. So, for example, the, the the guy that you mentioned that, that saw his family burning, how does he end up still alive today? Uh, so a lot of the teenagers, like young boys, um, they were seen as fit and healthy and they could go and work. If you were, you know, malnourished, you didn't look right. like you could do hard labor because they were working from 5, 6 a.m. in the morning on, again, less than 500 calories. And they would be working in the cold, in the harsh weather, in Poland or in Eastern Europe on so few calories doing hard labor. And you would have to be physically fit. That's terrible. Mm-hmm. So basically they just survived because the war ended and everybody was basically let go, emancipated. Uh, they were liberated in liberated, the camps. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com, to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. So let's talk about some of the more mentioned kind of some of the experiments. Where did this start? And what were they doing? Give us kind of a little bit on, on that because you hear, is it Mengele? Uh, Dr. Mengele. How do you pronounce it? Uh, I pronounce it 
Mengele. Mengele. Dr. Gotcha. Mengele, yeah. I have no idea. So he Dr. is Mengele. one of the main ones who everyone knows about who did the experiments at Auschwitz. So uh, in Birkenau, you can see where his kind of office, uh, right. I don't know what word you want to use to call it. It's actually just a pile of rubble now. And essentially the Nazis had these like social Darwinist health measures that took place and they would use these experiments not necessarily for medical research or to propel the field of medicine. Uh Um, They would use it for the sake of it. So I think in Ravensbrück, for example, they would transplant in the legs one tibia to another tibia. They would... uh, Transfer one tibia to the Yeah, like a... almost like bone transplants and they would inject them with the women's legs. I think there's images as well. You can you know they, they took photographs of this where they would inject women's legs with bacteria and then try and treat it again. And a lot of these women were Polish women as well in these camps. And these women would undertake these experiments with no anesthetic. So they would be injected with things and then try and treat it. And a lot of them were if they couldn't take on any more experiments, they were shot. Like you said, they, they injected gangrene? Uh, it was a type of gangrene almost. Um, it was sulfamonide. Sulfamonide. Uh-huh. And um, I think I pronounced that wrong again. They would inject that into their legs as well. And that would just be complete pain. It's terrible. I can't even imagine. And again, no anesthetic for these women as well. Yeah, well, that's, you know, if I'm just actually reading Slayer's Angel of Death, which when you're in high school, is kind of the, you know, the opening line of Auschwitz, the meaning of pain, the way I want you to die. But they talk about that, about uh, no anesthesia, uh, pumped with fluid inside your brain, pressure in your skull begins pushing through your eyes. Is this some of the stuff that they do? Burning flesh strips away, test of heat burns your skin, your mind starts to boil where they're testing how much heat you could take, how much cold you could take. That sort of thing as well? Is mm-hmm. that the least to do? Mm-hmm. All the time. And they also, in the women's camps, they would... Uh, so abortion wasn't allowed in Germany, but then a lot of these women who were prostitutes would come to the camp and they would be pregnant. So they would perform abortions there with no anesthetic. Oh, and uh, the abortions, because they didn't have... Ravensburg at this time uh, didn't have a kind of incinerator or a crematorium, so... They would perform these abortions, and in the book it, you know, says how after these abortions they would carry the fetuses in a bucket across the camp and put put them in the boiler room. Oh, this is terrible. And again, with Ravensbrück, the issue was because Auschwitz was liberated before that, everyone, a lot of people came to Ravensbrück, and then because they were losing the war, and you have to remember they were going to be tried for war crimes, they had to get rid of all the evidence. Right. So... They burned a lot of the files. So everything that we're talking about now, that's probably a very small amount of what we actually know. I can't even imagine what we we don't have evidence of. And they would burn the files and there was a a lake by Ravensbrook and they would throw all the files into the lake as well. So you couldn't see anything. You couldn't have evidence. You wouldn't know. No. Was there some kind of a, a obsession with twins? Yeah, so... Is that Mengele? Yeah, he would perform experiments on twins because obviously wanted this Aryan master race. Um, I'm dumbing that down a little bit, but that's essentially what they wanted and a productive way for them to 
build up their population and have this mastery was to have twins. You know, what's better than one Aryan child is two. So they would take twins, perform experiments on them, inject them, inject their eyeballs. They tried to change the eye colors of them as well. Um, some pretty horrific and experiments went on and if you didn't survive the experiments you were shot so you can imagine that these these poor people were, had experiments performed on them and if they couldn't be experiments on anymore they were just shot just shoot them how did hitler get to such level of power of prominence of power you mentioned the compliance and all that sort of thing like how does how does that get to the point of of no return you know and even though it seems like it's ancient history. It was only, you know, not even 80 years ago. Mm-hmm. There's like we mentioned, there's still people that are alive from those camps. How, how, did, how, did, that, how did it get so out of control? Do you, do you know? I'm not a historian. No, no, I understand. <laughs> uh, from, from, what, from what you've studied, what you've learned. Um, so it was the World War One had to happen. Uh, Germany was very destitute after the Weimar government came into power and they were sanctioned. Um, massively after the First World War, and they were just economically broken, and unfortunately, that's that's how it started. And nineteen thirty-three, thirty-three is when January he came into power, and they didn't even receive a majority vote. So they came into power without a majority vote, and then everything just kind of <coughs> escalated from there. They managed to get hold of emergency powers, and. Again, it started from 1933 onwards. And when we're talking about the compliancy, there's always that question of, did people know? Did Were people aware of what was going on? You mean around the world or just within the country? Within the country, gotcha. but also around the world, uh, of what was going on to the you know populations that they, they didn't favor. And were people officiating their regime essentially and it's interesting because i think around in the 40s the allies uh flew planes over germany and dropped leaflets saying uh the leaflets were saying something along the lines of we know what's going on because of the um mass extermination they so if the allies knew what was going on they they dropped leaflets over germany to say we know what's going on and we're going to punish you the planes would fly over so and drop leaflets in the population of right. Germany. So, you know, if the Allies knew what was going on, surely the population knew as well. But of course, there was also people who saved a lot of... Let's talk about that, yeah. Yeah, so obviously a lot of people didn't... They didn't necessarily comply, but they also didn't stand up and say something as well. And unfortunately for them at the time, that was probably an easier choice. Right. Um, but you have to remember again, like over three hundred thousand people worked for Hitler. So that's three hundred thousand people that were part of his regime. A good example of someone who worked for him but says they didn't. She denies being a Nazi is Lenny Riefenstahl, who did all of his propaganda films like Triumph of the Will. Um, she said later on that she was not a Nazi, but then she made his huge propaganda films the industry was littered with propaganda because so tell us what kind of a propaganda film because there is one in in inglorious bastards that was actually directed by eli, eli yeah yeah. yeah but um tell me kind of what they would use those for and what they would kind of show in those movies because you have to remember that it's 
not necessarily what you hear, but what you see as well, like subliminally. Perception is reality, right? Yeah, yeah. So Hitler loved movies. Himmler loved movies. He loved the, the movie industry, and you know, a way to get people to take the propaganda was through the medium of film. People can see it, and that's what they did. And Lenny Riefenstahl was one of the main directors. Uh, Triumph of the Will is the most probably the most known film, um, but they also made propaganda films such as I think it was called The Evil Jew or The Eternal Jew, and it was uh, an anti-Semitic. Right. Uh, film that portrayed Jews as evil as well. So you have to remember when people went to the cinemas and watched these films, they came out thinking that. Because you have to remember also, you know, when I was a kid growing up, I had no context of history. And when I watched, sure. I watched films and Russians were the bad guys because of the, yeah. all these American movies portrayed Russians as the bad guys. So as a kid, I got thinking, oh, Russians are the bad guys. These people, they the were brainwashed. Germany, they yeah. would essentially come out thinking, oh, the Jews are evil. I had Dee Snyder on a few months ago talking about Russia and um, kind of the organization he was setting up where he was having celebrities read the real reports of what's going on in the Ukraine that Russia people would get that couldn't be filtered through some of their social media. And because if you don't do that, people just believe what they see and read on here on TV. So people mm-hmm. would go to the movie theaters and would these be long movies, like feature films, or they'd be some like, of them were short movies. Gotcha. Some of them a little bit longer, um, and it was just a way for them to filter across their message as well. Right. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com, to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. So, who are some? I mean, obviously, you talk about Schindler's List, and that was about somebody who kind of had this underground railroad to save concentration camp victims. Was there others like that, or, or do you know the story of Schindler? Kind of explain what yeah, exactly yeah. he did. So Let's talk about that. When we were in Poland, we actually visited Schindler's factory. Um, so, Schindler, he saved quite a lot of people by putting them to work in his factory so they weren't. Oh, so he kind of had some kind of carte blanche to use whoever he wanted and Hitler wouldn't come in there? So a lot of people think it was Hitler given every single order and he, he was obviously in charge but he also had other people right. in charge of his camps and Himmler, Himmler, Himmler was with the, the main people to design the camps so it wasn't necessarily just from him, it was him he was the leader but there was so many other people underneath him that would organize all of this as well so how what would what would so he he would have them just work in their in their in his factory, and that would give them a safe harbor. Almost, yeah. I mean, a lot of them. You'll you'll have seen it in the movie. Obviously, it's very. I don't know what the word is. Movie size. Yeah, Hollywoodized, yeah. right? Uh, but essentially, there were people that harbored Jews and took them to safety. A lot of them fled as well. Uh, one of my favorite directors of all time is Douglas Sirk. His, he was married and his ex-wife was actually a member of the Nazi party. And he married a Jewish woman and because his ex-wife was a Nazi, he was forbidden from seeing his son again. Oh. And he ended up 
going through Europe to carry on making films and then eventually he came to America and worked in Hollywood and he, he was a fantastic director. He did a film called All That Heaven Allows, which was one of my favorite movies, but he fled Nazi Germany and you know came over here with his Jewish wife because his Jewish wife was being persecuted. It's interesting because, um, you know, Bruno Sammartino, one of the most famous wrestlers of all time in America, came from, from Italy, which was being uh, occupied by Nazi, by the Nazi regime. And he had to, his mother took him and his brother to hide in the mountains of Italy. Uh-huh. And she would leave to go back into the city to grab food and would be gone for days at a time with Bruno and his little brother just waiting with other people she was kind of the the breadwinner so people like you said people had to flee they just had to get out of mm-hmm. the way of this war machine to try and survive and hide wherever they could yeah and unfortunately a lot of them didn't yeah a lot of them again prostitutes apoliticals religious people that didn't fit in with what they wanted were just done sent right. to these camps so was there ever any documentation, like was it possible to escape from a concentration camp? Is there ever any stories of someone who was able to do that? I don't know of any particular stories of like any particular person, but it, it has been documented that people did manage to escape. The How camp. could you escape? I have no idea. Yeah, right? I have no idea. I, so a lot of them survived just through, I don't know, I guess she will. So was this almost like a walled-in type of a camp like like a prison almost barbed wire fencing so the one yeah. in Auschwitz that I went to in Auschwitz it was all barbed wire fencing and a lot of them were like very highly guarded as well you couldn't escape yeah yeah you, yeah so let's talk about like in the 60s and 70s you heard a lot of like I don't know the exact name maybe it was Mengele or maybe it was Himmler or something they, they kind of had escaped and they were living in America or something you would find out that they were Nazi war criminals. Let's talk about some of that. Okay, so I actually, this reminds you, so this is one of the documentaries I watched with my dad as a kid, and I only vaguely remember parts of it. There were a lot of rumors, and obviously some of them it has found to be true, that a lot of the Nazis fled to South America. And one of the rumors, I remember watching on this documentary, uh, is that one of the doctors flew uh, to a town in South America. I don't know where it is, unfortunately, I can't remember. And he carried on experimented there. And then in this particular town, the population of twins started going up after he Again, I don't know if this is true. Right, this right, is right. on a documentary I watched a long, long time ago yeah, as a yeah. kid. But it's always stuck with me that a lot of these Nazis fled to South America because they were going to be tried as war criminals because what they did was abhorrent. Of course. And they, you know, they, they deserve to see justice for what they did. And obviously you had the Nuremberg trials after where some of them were hung and put into prison. But a lot of them did flee to South America as well. Because there's, a, there's a, a famous story um, by Stephen King called Apt Pupil, mm-hmm. short story, where this kid finds out that his old man neighbor is a Nazi war criminal and then starts to basically, you know, torture him to do things that he doesn't want to do, which turns him back into this terrible Nazi killer. Mm-hmm. Uh, it takes place in America. And I remember, like I said, there was a few that you'd see, like, you know... the he, he called himself Ernie Schwartz, but he's really like Mengele or somebody like that. You would see these guys would kind of get weeded out mm-hmm. and found. I mean, I mean, a few years ago, they were still getting tried and sentenced to prison. And these these men are in their nineties, eighties, nineties, and as they sh- as they should be. Yeah, of course, they absolutely should be. Right. And you know, at the Nuremberg trials, the they were 
tried for all of their war crimes there as well. I mean, one that I was actually just reading about the other day was one called, oh, I think it was Dorothea Bins. Dor Dorothea Bins, and she was only 20, 21, and she was one of the main women who, one of the main guards at the Ravensbrook, Cup, uh, wow. Ravensbrook camp. And you have to remember this, like, 21, 21, this 21-year-old was essentially indoctrinated, so she was 20 odd years old when she was working at this camp and you have to remember that all through the 30s in the you know late 1920s that she was filled with this ideology and which she thought what she was doing was right at the time right because she didn't know any different so what she experienced in the in the camps and how she treated people was the complete norm for her and obviously she was tried after as well so i just looked up uh Mengele. And he did flee to Buenos Aires, mm -hmm. where he got a job as a carpenter. Uh, and then he moved to the house of a Nazi sympathizer. And then he was finally outed um, in about 1956, which is crazy. Think about that. That's like 12 years later. He was just living on the lamb under yeah. a, a fake ID. And he was, he was, he was found by practicing medicine without a license in Argentina mm -hmm. after a teenage girl died from an abortion and then basically all just came back out again like you said like just reading about how these guys were able to do this mm -hmm. and just escape and fleeing through South America and once again this is pre-cell phones and everything else that you could do but it's just amazing to me that those guys flee. So, so, when, so when Hitler's regime kind of fell apart they just were able to get out of the country and, 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 and run away? A lot of them were yeah and a lot of them fled right before the end of the war because they knew the war was ending as well. Right. And there are still obviously ones out there who've maybe passed away or who got to live their life and with no consequence for what they did. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. How was Hitler finally brought down? Like, what was the final straw? Uh, so, obviously, it was towards the end of the war. Germany was losing the war, and he killed himself. In the, in the bunker mm -hmm. in Hamburg? Um, I think it was in Hamburg, because I know, like, when I live there, there's Hitler's bunker is right in the middle, kind of right near the Reeperbahn. Mm -hmm. And it might not be the one where he killed himself in, but, but it was a big, black, ugly, like fat spider on, in the middle of the city and just had a vibe about it like oh my gosh you just see it and you think oh there's evil mm -hmm. evil vibes come from that you know mm -hmm. but you didn't get that when you were at Auschwitz it wasn't you got evil evil vibes it was just I can't explain the way it made you feel um it was I think because also I was filming as well yeah it kind of like protected from because you're looking at it through a camera Right. So obviously, I was I was experiencing it, and then you kind of feel guarded from the yeah the horror because I was looking at it from the perspective of a film as well. It's interesting because I know when I went to um, the pyramids in Mexico, the Aztec pyramids, 
and you go stand on the altar of sacrifice, which is, I don't know, about 20 flights of steps up, and you're standing there, and, like, I'm pretty sure there's, you can see the blood stains in the rocks, at least in my mind's eye, I recall that, but you just feel, like, uneasy, like, you know something happened here, mm-hmm. you know? And it's interesting, because the, the, I think those spirits and those vibes kind of continue on, like I said, like, from, from the bunker, you know? Mm, they should because it's something that obviously we should never forget and it's so yeah. prevalent to what is going on in the world today and I always I've always said that everyone should try and visit Auschwitz Auschwitz-Birkenau if they ever get the chance they should always read about it but they should visit there because I think to see you read about it in the history books and you can know every single number fact but being there is different so right it's completely different yeah and uh, i actually remember so one of the strangest things for me when i was there actually was one of the stories i'd heard before i went and again i've got a few stories that my dad would tell me because his history teacher my dad was born in the 50s so um when he, he he's a huge huge history buff so when he was taught history in school everything was so kind of i guess fresh and, yeah brand new almost yeah, yeah. So one of the stories he told me was when the prisoners would line up for soup was it was for in a, soup for soup. Yeah. So there was this huge barrel, and the top you had to if you wanted a good portion of the soup that was filled with meat, you had to be in a certain part of the queue. So if you were at the front, uh, you would kind of just get very very watery soup, um, and if you were in the middle you would just, again, get watery soup. But if you were towards the end of the queue, all the meat would sink. So if you were oh. at the end of the line, you would get the meaty part of the soup. But unfortunately, if you went too far at the end of the line and there was no soup left, you didn't get any. Oh, wow. And it was really strange for me because when I went to Auschwitz, uh, there was a soup machine there. And because I knew this, it, it felt so strange. And there was soup in a vendor machine right here that you could just pay for. Wow. And I was thinking, like, I, I remember that story, and I was like, it completely... I can't, I can't explain how it made me feel, but it, it wasn't a good feeling. Right. And you think like, wow, I can pay for You can soup. have as much soup as you want. Yeah, and then these... And they had to figure out the place in line to get the best soup. Yeah. You mentioned before about the story about the German shepherds and the dogs. Oh, yeah, I told Since we're talking yeah. about food. So when I was obviously researching for the documentary, um, I spoke to my dad because the way my dad spoke about German history, it was... It was all, that's how I got into it. That's he how he was quite knowledgeable so, about yeah, it as well. He was yeah. so, he, he is so knowledgeable and he would always be passing me his, his books that he had read to pass on to me. And I've still got so many of them now. And one of the stories that stuck with me, so I, I met up with him for a coffee and I kind of like, you know, had, had my phone out when I was recording it. And the story was that, again, I, I don't have any kind of like, this is what he told me that his history teacher had told him. So I can't, I don't know the name of the camp, but there was one night a fight broke out in the Russian bunker. And obviously everyone knows, you've seen the imagery that the Nazis had German shepherds. They, so they sent in uh, two dogs to sort the fight out in the bunker. And when the guards returned, the Russian prisoners had eaten the dogs. That fast. That's what, yeah. That's crazy, right? So obviously you have to remember the, these men in the bunkers, these women in the bunkers are all starving. The Russians, uh, no, the guards had sent in yeah. uh, two German shepherds to break up the fight. And the dogs so they were, were able to overpower the, the dogs mm-hmm. and then eat them. Mm-hmm. I mean, that makes perfect sense to me. You know, like you said, like 
you know, if you, if you the, the talk about like the plane that goes down in the Andes or the Donner Party, mm-hmm. there's nothing to eat. They ate, they ate, they ate the fellow fellow right? passengers, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's, what, again, that's one diminutive story out of Lord knows how many yeah. stories. They, that's, that's one that my dad told me. And again, like I said, like a lot of the evidence was disappeared. Disappeared, destroyed. Um, destroyed. And a lot of these testimonies came from people who did survive. So you can't even imagine the horrors of the people who didn't survive. So one of the things I was reading about literally just the other day was I came across this article and uh, some people uh, who work in Auschwitz, they'd found a photo album made of human skin. Oh, my gosh. So... One of the camps, I want to double check the name of it. Get the camp, right? Yeah. Yeah. So they would ask, actually, skin people, hopefully after they died, but presumably maybe even while they were alive, mm-hmm. and they would make book covers uh, out of it. Buchenwald. Wow. I think it was Buchenwald is the camp. And that was where... So there was this kind of, I don't want to say myth, because you don't know if it's true, that was the human lampshades made out of human skin. Right. And um, they don't know if it was before. destroyed. And I asked, did you say you've heard of that already? I've heard of that. Yeah, before, yeah, yeah. So obviously it's a kind That's of... a thing, yeah. Right. Yeah, it's a thing that they made photo albums, wallets, lampshades out of human skin. And one of the things that they did find of evidence of stuff being made of human skin was this photo album. I think from what I remember, someone had found it in their attic and from the Second World War and they must have handed it in or sent it to people and when they checked it it was supposedly made from human skin and it's one of I think that was in like 2020 that they found it so there's still still being found now uh, of evidence of their atrocities and though I can't remember the name of the woman she was uh, she was actually killed by the SS and not her she wasn't killed sorry her husband was killed by the SS um, and they ran one of these camps uh, she was sentenced to prison, I think, and I think she killed herself later on. She was one of the people that ran these camps. And obviously, I have tattoos, you have tattoos, yeah. and you know some of the prisoners would have tattoos. And they would look at prisoners who had tattoos, and they would take the skin of the tattoos and use them for things like wallets, supposedly. Oh, my gosh. So in each prisoner would have a tattoo of like their yeah, inmate number? Yeah, of course, but they also just had tattoos in general. Oh, yeah. And if, you know... They like the artwork. They would use them for things like wallets. Apparently, again, these are all things that I've kind of, because of my interest in it, I've read. I've spoken to people. Because obviously I went to Poland and I spoke to people. And there's stuff you read, again, in history books, but then there's people who had family there who haven't had books written about them. They haven't been able to give what their their mum told them, their grandma told them. And these stories are kind of passed down. Well, let me ask you this. You said that you, that you talked to the one guy who who's, saw his family burning. What else did he did he tell you? Anything else? What's the demeanor of somebody who lived through something like that? Well, even I remember in school we had uh, a gentleman called Jack who came to our school actually to do a talk. He survived the Holocaust. Oh, he was he was a concentration camp. Yeah, survivor. he was in a concentration camp and. He he survives, and one of the things that really stuck out for me when he came was his, I think it was his eight-year-old brother was put in a separate queue and you never saw him again. Yeah. And that happened a lot. Families were split up. Right. And Himmler in particular, <laughs> for women, uh, one of the biggest 
kind of forms of torture, I guess, for them was being having their children taken away, being taken away it's from terrible, their families. Right? And they, he, he punished women differently to how he would punish the men. They would just be separated from their families, from their children. They'd never see their children again. And again, that is a form of another form of torture. Didn't you mention too earlier that they saw the women just as more of uh, I can't remember the word that you used, but just as, as basically just a way to make babies. Yeah, because obviously also they wanted this Aryan race, so they wanted women to have as many children as possible, as many children as possible, because that would help them bring up this population that they wanted. So let's say you came in there and you were, because uh, you mentioned earlier that Hitler wanted the blue-eyed, blonde-haired Aryan race. Mm-hmm. So let's say you came into the concentration camp as a woman and you were blonde-haired and blue-eyed. Would you Would you kind of be used as a incubator well if you were in the camp you were probably opposition to them okay so they encouraged what they considered healthy german population to oh i see to reproduce the the ones in the camps obviously some of the women were raped and became pregnant that way and they abortion again because before was not allowed in germany at the time but they didn't want the babies so they didn't want these undesirable babies and have the abortions without uh, yeah anesthesia so a few last things as we start to wind down here and, and even if you don't know the answer technically how did germany kind of rebound after hitler was taken out of power because the rest of the world was probably just looking at germany and obviously japan as well as just the most horrible place on the planet i mean do you know anything about that? Did it, did it take a while for the country to rebound? Did, did a new guy come in and say Hitler was wrong and we're going to make this right? Like, So obviously the, the Second World War led to the Cold War. Um, so that's when you had the kind of divide where the occupation of East Germany and the occupation of West Germany where Russia occupied one side, America. That's it. That's an entirely... Oh, wow. Yeah, so that's so why that's Germany kind of split. The start with, of the Cold War, yeah. With the Berlin Wall. And the Cold War yeah. was... Was between America and Russia, and Russia. Mm-hmm. And, and why did Russia step in? Because they were just the next one in line. Russia were also helping liberate the camps at the time as well. Oh, I see. So the Russians liberated Auschwitz, and then the the Americans were also in the war, and then they were both. But just just to clarify, so so the reason why the Berlin Wall came was because there was West Germany and East Germany. Mm-hmm. It was one side still more. Uh, Hitler supporting the other side. No, no. Or? So one side was very kind of communist. The other side was the American side. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I didn't know that. I yeah. Knew why there was so much that came from the Second World War. Like so much that came because of this. Yeah, yeah. And also that's why some of the stuff we're still only learning about today from the Second World War didn't get kind of, I guess known at the time because so so soon after the second world war we had the cold war it went right into so another was, yeah i never I, I never knew why there was a, a berlin wall it's interesting see you taught me something you taught yeah. me a lot of stuff <laughs> um i guess the last question for you could something like that ever happen again in the modern world i mean could you ever see because like, you think you think of hitler like that was almost kind of an antichrist situation where the most evil guy takes his control and takes his power and we've seen you know elements of that sense we're even kind of going through it now with what putin's doing with with the ukraine but i mean could that ever happen again for well, some it has guy? happened again there's been genocides in other countries around the world um 
So it's it is it's something people say we learn from history, but this stuff is still going on in the world, and that's why we should never forget things like right uh, the Second World War and the mass extermination of so many populations because genocide is still going on in the world. That's a great know. point, though. And that's why I wanted to do this today. Was people need to remember or never forget mm-hmm. um, what exactly we're talking about here. What, what's the final solution? Is that something that was was known for the Nazis? Yeah, so the final solution was Hitler's final plan to exterminate all of the Jews. Gotcha, that's what he called it? Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, such a evil, evil person, a whole evil mindset. But um, The entire regime was evil. Um, there was so many, I have so many little kind of like stories and little notes that I've read from certain individual officers who ran these camps, because it wasn't just it was Hitler wasn't running these camps. He had men doing it for him. That's right. what people need to remember as well. There were so many individual evil people that participated. They kind of took the ball and ran with it in another direction. Yeah. Kind of the that's abuse why, of power. Yeah. Completely. Okay. Completely. And that's what people have to remember as well. So many people part of this. They were all throughout Germany. A lot of them worked in the camps. The the were women who were guards in the camps as well. And what was interesting was Himmler gave the women dogs for their, their weapon of choice. So the women went around with dogs huh. because they would run the camps differently. So Himmler felt like women should run the women's camps. There were obviously men in charge of the women. And um, they would give them dogs to take charge of the camps. Wow. Yeah. But then uh, one woman who... Her name is gone. She ran the Ravensburg camp, and she apparently did such a good job there that they sent her to Auschwitz, and it got to the point with her that she was fired from Auschwitz and went back to Ravensburg because of what she saw in Auschwitz. She didn't... The horrors she saw at Auschwitz were so bad that she couldn't uh, comply with what they were asking of her, and she went back to Ravensbrück because she didn't physically punish right. the prisoners. Oh, I see. She would use other means of punishment. And then you had other women's guard who would physically punish and torture the women as well. So it's, that's what's really interesting because these evil people, they have levels that they wouldn't go to, but even the levels they would go to are still abhorrent. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Is there any books that people can read that you've read that you think explain a lot? Yeah, of- so one of my favorite books that I've read, I think, three times now is called If This Is a Woman, and it's by Sarah Helm. It's about if, the this Ra- is- if This Is a Woman, it's by Sarah Helm. It's one of the Ravensbrook Camp uh, books. It's probably the main book on it because so little research was done on the, on the women's camps. Right. Um, they only started researching the women's camps around the 90s because the women were kind of like a forgotten part of the Holocaust. Right. Um, another book is called the SS Einsatzgruppen, and I can't remember who wrote it. Maybe we can find it and put it in yeah, a link yeah, below. Yeah. But it's an orange book that I remember buying when I was sixteen or seventeen, and that goes into the details of the Einsatzgruppen, who were the death squads that went throughout Europe. So you can read and learn about all the horrors that went through Europe and what people had to endure yeah. as well. There, you're amazing, Hannah. Great stuff, and thank you. And like I said, never forget this so that it can never happen again. Mm-hmm.